Hey, you guys, welcome back. This is week 41 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. And this week we are wrapping up Isaiah. <laughs> so uh, five weeks in a row of solid Hebrew poetry from this master is a lot to digest. But hopefully you've had a chance in the last four weeks to just kind of, you know, wade in a little deeper than maybe you have before. I know I have. I've never studied my guts out so hard, especially this many back-to-back -back weeks, and I feel like I'm reaping the rewards, and I'm starting to see it trickle into my family. So hopefully you're getting a feel for that as well. I know this is a challenging one, especially to try and translate this into like family scripture study, but I think there are enough little beautiful pieces that hopefully you have some, you know, some goodness to fill up on with your families as you go. You also probably by the time you hear this or watch this, you've had a chance to listen to conference. So I actually think this is a perfect week to dovetail into general conference because this is Isaiah's last words to us. He is a prophet like President Nelson, who's been around for a few generations. <laughs> He's seen a lot of history in the children of Israel, and he wants to focus their eyes forward. In fact, I almost, you know, I don't know if you heard the, um, the single adult fireside with President and Sister Nelson, where he said he doesn't buy green bananas anymore <laughs> because he knows he's getting older and he only focuses on the things that matter most. I feel like that with this last segment of Isaiah, that he's he set the stage for us. We've learned a lot about the Messiah and now he wants to focus their eyes forward. He also seems to have this anxiety to correct things that he sees where they're amiss. You know, almost like you do as a parent right before your kid goes on a mission or to college, like you're you just want to cram in as much guidance as you can, and that's what you're going to get in today's study. He's going to talk to those who are who think they're righteous and are a little off course. He's going to talk to those who are righteous and have been cast out and how they can find peace. And then he's going to talk far into the future to us and to give us guidance about how to bring God's children home. It's almost like he's trying to touch on all the generations that he's been called to preach to, and he tries to do it all as quick as he can. So it's a lot, and it'll kind of bounce around a little bit, but there's so much goodness sort of woven into each verse that I I think you're going to love it. I, it's, it's hard. I really loved last week's focus, but I think there is there's profound doctrine in these chapters, and I intend to find every bit of it. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes, and let's get started. In previous weeks, Isaiah starts off with words of comfort. <laughs> That's not the case with Isaiah 58. He comes off strong. And that's because he has, the children of Israel have some course correcting to do. And again, I think Isaiah knows his time is getting shorter. And so he gets pretty clear. The issue that they're having is about fasting, that they're starting to fast in order to put on a show. There's hypocrisy in it. There's pride in it. The bigger issue is that this sin of breaking this commandment and not following it the way God would intend is creating separation. It, this fasting, this false fasting is becoming this wedge that Satan is using to separate them from God. And remember, Isaiah is a prophet. He seeks to reconnect, to repair the breach. So he's going to teach them the right way to fast. What I love about this is I think it has so much application for us. So basically the issue that they're having is they're they're trying to make their voice big. They're trying to make sure all their neighbors know that they're fasting. You know, you've probably seen this with your kids sometimes when they mope about and moan on fast Sunday and tell you how hungry they are. There's a lot of that in these verses. Here's what I thought was really powerful. The bulk of Isaiah's teachings about the fast are about how it's in similitude. He doesn't necessarily use those words, but the reason that came to mind for me is because I was thinking back on Cain and Abel. Remember at the very beginning, we, we studied about how 
they were directed to give an offering. It was supposed to be the firstlings of the flock. And Cain came with the bounties of the field instead. And he talked about how he was tempted by the adversary to do it. Like he, he, he brought something that wasn't asked for. That's basically what the children of Israel are doing in this scenario. They're bringing, a, you know, they talk about how they were afflicted and things were, you know, it was difficult to fast all day to put on this show. And they're not understanding why God isn't blessing them the way he, they think he should. And it's the same thing we saw with Cain. He was offended that God didn't like his offering. And what, what the Lord taught in that moment was that the reason it needed to be the firstlings of the flock is because it was in similitude of the Savior. The same thing is happening here with the fast. If you look at the verses, like at six and seven, he's teaching you what the fast is supposed to be. And it, it has the Messiah written all over it. It says, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of the wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, deal bread to the hungry, that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. When you see naked, cover him, that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. That just sounds like the Savior, right? That his whole focus was on those who were without and how can he help? That's what the fast is supposed to do for us. I think it's why we don't just go without meals, but and in addition, we're encouraged to give the money that we would have used to help those around us and even further, those beyond the ones that are around us. That's why he's asking us to do it is because it creates in us a Christ-like character. When we go without and offer what we have to others, we are like Christ. And I just, I love the similitude piece of fasting. I don't think I'm teaching that well enough to my kids. So I just really love the, the reminder that Isaiah is offering. I also love that the very bulk of the verses are all about the blessings that come from honoring this commandment, especially doing it in the way that the Lord has asked. Because that's like from 8 all the way down to 14. These are the blessings that come if you will just fast. So if you look at 8, it says, then the light will break forth as the morning. 9 says, then thou shalt call on the Lord and he shall answer. Because remember, they were annoyed that the Lord wasn't answering their prayers. They were saying, like in verse 3, wherefore we have fasted and thou seest not. They're bugged that the Lord isn't helping them fast enough. And he's saying, oh no, if you if you honor his commandment and do it in the way he's asking with this soft heart, he will answer you as quickly as you need it. He says in 10 that if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall the light rise in obscurity and thy darkness will be as noonday. So if you feel cloudy or misunderstood or that maybe there's a piece of the doctrine that's not coming clear, honor the fast. That will open up light and opens up understanding. He also talks about how the Lord will guide you continually in 11, that you'll be like a watered garden, a spring of water. I mean, these are huge promises. I really love what you find at the end of 12, where he says, if you'll do these things and take care of my poor and my needy and my afflicted, you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. These are words that were just used to describe the Savior himself a few chapters ago, that he can be the repairer of the breach. That's what he wants you to do. The whole purpose of mortality is to develop the characteristics of Christ. So as we fast and as we let those hunger pangs that we feel prompt us to understand the pains and afflictions of others and then act on those and do what we can, we become like he is. We become a repairer of the breach, a restorer of paths. I just love that piece of it. The idea that a fast can be so much deeper than maybe I've given it credit for. It was eye-opening to me. 
the last couple of verses focus more on honoring the Sabbath, but he, it's that same idea. He's pleading with the children of Israel to set aside their own desires, their own wishes, their own things they want to do on, on this holy day and give more to the Lord. And if they will just do that, then you have this big if then in 14, then shalt thou delight in the Lord and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places. It's the same promise that President Nelson made to us, that if we turn to our families and we try to teach them in the way that they are asking us to, this home-centered, church-supported curriculum, the Sabbath will become a delight. That was his promise. So that's essentially what Isaiah is asking this people to do as well. The children of Israel are not happy with the response times of the Lord, and Isaiah is trying to help them understand that the Lord hasn't gone anywhere. They have. They've retreated from Him, and there's iniquity getting in the way. So if you look in verse 2, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. I love the way he phrased this. One, I can think, I can almost picture that wedge scenario that we've been talking about, that the sin is creating this separation. But I love the way he talks about how their sins have hid his face. I think it's the same thing we're going to see in the New Testament when they talk about seeing through a glass darkly. It's this understanding that, well, to put it like Sherry Dew does, sin makes you stupid <laughs> and you, you mess up things. You don't see clearly because of the choices that you've made. And it just seems to have so much application for our world today. It sounds like the same problems are coming about. So if you look in three and four, they're trusting in vanity, they're speaking lies, they're conceiving mischief, meaning they're trying to concoct their own version of the doctrine because they can't see clearly anymore. They don't have the influence of the Spirit the same way they used to have. So now they're trying to create their own narrative and it's getting everything twisted. In fact, it talks about how they hatch cockatrice's eggs. This is in five. And they weave the spider's web. Basically, what Isaiah is saying is you're consuming things that are poisonous and then you act surprised that, that you don't feel well. <laughs> That's kind of the idea behind this. And he talks about how they're covering their works. That's in six, that they the webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. All these mortal safety nets that they're trying to create for themselves. These doctrines that are more comfortable to them have no power to save. And Isaiah and the Lord want these children saved. So he's coming on strong to help them understand what's going wrong. In eight, he clarifies it a little more. The way of peace, they know not. They no longer have a clear path. In fact, he calls it a crooked path. There is no judgment in their goings. They have made crooked paths, and whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. The Lord's path is straight and narrow. In fact, when we were in Israel, they, they talked about this. When a gate was to what gate opens up to a city, oftentimes they would make that entryway crooked. In fact, we went to one where it almost made this like zigzag pattern to get into the city because they didn't want a straight shot for horses to just charge through. They wanted to make it a bit cumbersome. It's the same thing I feel when I go into a place like Ikea. I just feel like it's designed to have crooked paths on purpose. I have to wind a hole through the store in the hopes that I will get distracted and buy a whole bunch more stuff. Um, and it works. It works on me every single time. And, and that's what Isaiah is trying to warn about. He's saying, you're, you're deliberately making this path so cumbersome that you're losing focus on where you're even going. You need the straight and narrow path. Another thing he talks about that I thought was particularly applicable to our time is in nine. He says, therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity for brightness, but we walk in darkness. 
To me, this is a lot like what we see today, especially on social media. Uh, sometimes you see people who are demanding change from the brethren. Uh, they demand that the doctrine change. Uh, and they're basically saying, we'll wait for the light. I I'm not going to engage until the light comes to me. What it reminded me of is I used to do theater as a kid. My parents um, were restoring an old theater for most of my childhood. And when you would get on the stage, especially if you were blocked in, there would be little spots, like a little X made of painter's tape on the floor so that you would know as an actor where to stand. Because if you stand on that spot, you get the spotlight on you and people can see you. If you choose to stand anywhere else on the stage, the spotlight doesn't know where to find you because it's not like they can search around and track you down. So you had to come and stand on the spot. And if you did, then you got this warm, bright glow. But to stand off to the sides or even in the wings and expect the spotlight to come seek you out didn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think that's what's happening with the gospel as well, that it doesn't make sense to demand change and say, I'm not going to engage with the gospel until it changes. What makes sense is to say, I'm going to stand on my spot. I'm going to feel the warmth and feel the glow and trust that the Lord knows what He's doing, <laughs> that the brethren who serve the Lord know what they're doing. And they, you know, I loved Elder Renland from the last conference where he talked about that speculation doesn't help you and it's kind of arrogant <laughs> for the brethren to demand revelation from the Lord. He was giving a reference with Heavenly Mother, but I think we do this in a lot of different ways. So we have to be really careful about this idea of we're waiting for the light, but behold obscurity for brightness, but we walk in darkness. I love the way it's added to intent. We grope as if we had no eyes. It's the, is, it's the as if that I thought was particularly interesting. They actually have eyes. They could open them. They could choose to find that little X on the stage and stand in it, but they grope around as if they can't. And Isaiah is saying, open up your eyes. He just wants them to snap out of it and to realize who they are. You go a little bit further and you see some warnings about truth falling by the wayside in the street. That's around 14 or so. And, and then you see where it's going to go from there. Around 20 and 21, you see that the only solution that will come, because they are going to get scattered, they are going to fall. And what will save them in the long run is that Zion will come. I think Isaiah can see really clearly the same way Moroni and Mormon could where things are going. And so he wants to end with this spot of hope. And that hope comes from this teaching about Zion and the Redeemer that will come. So if you look in 20, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, there will not be an automatic birth for all the children of Israel. They will need to turn their hearts to him. But if they do, then the promise is that he will not depart from them and he will call them back home. You guys remember how the first week of Isaiah, I told you about that patch of forest that had a controlled burn between our house and Jason's parents' house. We drove there, Jason and I, just this last weekend. We were going to his parents' house to pick up the kids, and I was looking for that patch of burn because I'm like, oh, I talked about this. I got to see how it's doing. Because it had been a few years since I'd really paid attention to it. The coolest part was, you guys, I couldn't tell where it was. <laughs> like, I, I finally, we finally found it, we think, but it was like there was so much green that had grown where it used to be literally just burned, charred blackness. All of a sudden, there's this surge of growth. And I'm not talking like a little bit of stubble on the ground. I'm, I'm saying like these are eight foot bushes that had grown in the place of where those trees were. I could still see like spikes of blackened tree trunks sort of scattered throughout them. But it gave me this surge of hope. <laughs> that sounds sort of ridiculous, but I found myself 
being eager to get back into the scriptures this week because I'm like, oh, this is what Isaiah was talking about, that when this growth starts to happen, it happens fast and it happens full and lush. And that's what you're going to find in 60, that he is talking about that phase. The children are going to get scattered. They're going to get lost, but then there will be this surge of growth and it's going to happen fast. So he invites everyone to arise for the light has come. This blackened piece of land is now getting access to a bright, warm light and it will react. It will grow. And it talks about how the Gentiles will come and how we will gather people in. I love what you see in five. It says, then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged. You're going to be amazed at the rapid growth of Zion. I think that's what we're seeing now as you see temples just like dot the earth. In fact, I love if you look in the footnotes on flow, it says that you will be radiant together. This I just loved. It is this promise that as we come together as children of Zion, as we work to share his light, we will radiate goodness in this really darkened landscape. Remember in two when he talked about how the earth will be in gross darkness and confusion, but the people of Zion will radiate his light out. And it just gets better as you flip the page. So when you go a little further, you'll see that strangers will come. We're going to bring others into his gospel and that they will help build these walls. They will help do good. And I think you see that right now as you know people are being converted to the gospel and they bring their traditions and their goodness and even wealth into at times to help build up the kingdom of God. Another thing you see is that the temple will be rebuilt and it will be rebuilt with these magnificent materials. And so he kind of details that out. He also talks about the blessings that will come at the end. In 18, violence shall no more be heard in the land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. This is talking about when the Savior is here, that there will be no violence in a world full of darkness. That's a pretty remarkable shift that will praise him. And that the reason all this happens is what happens in 19, that we won't even need the sun and the moon anymore because his everlasting light will be so present in Zion. I can't even really imagine what that means. I don't know if that means we're going to be like Alaska where they have endless sun for certain months of the year. I don't know what that means. I read a couple quotes and I put them in the notes, but you can see where some of the earlier church history leaders talked about how you can have a meeting and you won't even need like candles. You won't need any extra light source because his light will radiate out. So I'm, I'm intrigued and I'm really excited to see what that actually plays out as, but it's this promise of everlasting light. That's what helps Isaiah teach this gospel still, despite the fact that so many will fall away and that the whole group will eventually fall because it's a promise of everlasting light. In fact, he says that a few times in 20 and that it will last forever. And it's this, I love what you see in 22, a little one shall become a thousand and a small one, a strong nation. That's what I saw in the canyon this weekend that this area that was that should have just had a tiny bit of growth actually was like surging to the point that I couldn't see the boundaries anymore. I don't know where the controlled burn area stopped and the normal growth began. That's the promise of Zion, and we're invited to be a part of it. It's just exciting to be at this stage of life. In 61, you see how that transition happens, how a little one becomes a thousand and a small one, a strong nation. The way that happens is through the Messiah. So in the first few verses, you see Isaiah speak about the Messiah and what he will bring to the children of Israel, especially in these last days. These are the verses that the Savior quoted 
in that synagogue in Nazareth. Remember, it's I think it's in Luke 4, and he talks about how he is the fulfillment of these verses, which was a big statement because the Jews at his day would have known that these, these were verses about the Messiah. So, for him to claim that was a big, bold statement. It's It says beautiful things about his character, that he's going, he's anointed to preach good tidings. This is all verse 1 that he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, open up the prisons. Two, he talks about how he will comfort all that mourn. Three, I thought was particularly beautiful because it talks about taking away the hard and replacing it with something good. You know that Maxwell quote that I love where he says that the, the cavity that suffering carves into our heart will one day be the receptacle for joy. I feel like you see him create that transition in verse 3. Because he says, I will appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, those who are sad and lost and scattered, to give them beauty for ashes. I'm going to take that carved out place that looks ashen and hollow, and I'm going to create beauty from it. These are all mourning rituals, the ashes that they would put on, the sackcloth that they would wear, and the oil that they would remove from themselves because they didn't feel like they could have any kind of beautiful things when they were in mourning. He's saying, I'm going to take off all those mourning traditions and give you beauty back. So, he talks about the oil that he will give them for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness. I love this visual of all these people who have been through incredibly hard things and have found the Savior in the process become trees of righteousness. In my mind, I, I link this with Alma 32, where he talks about that seed of testimony that we're trying to grow. And that at some points in that tree growing phase, it's hard to trust that it's going to work. We want to believe the experiment will work, but it's hard, especially when you have no visible evidence that the seed is growing. And if you just lean in, the promise is that you will become a tree. I actually... I know people, and all of us do, right? People who have been through incredibly hard things and have mourned deeply and lost deeply uh, become these trees of righteousness because they've had to dig so deep. And when they turn to the Savior, He fills them. And those trees have a mighty work to do. It's If you look from like four to nine, this is they're going to be sent to rebuild, not just rebuild the actual city of Zion, but to rebuild the hearts and the people. To me, some of the most incredible teachers are people who have been through really, really hard things because they can tell me how. In fact, I love that he tells us how. So, in 7, he talks about how your shame for your shame you shall have double, meaning you're going to get double back. These, again, are Law of Moses references that all those years of pain, that they will be doubled. So, it almost makes me think of Elder Maxwell's quote that you won't just have your cavity full, you'll actually have your cavity full plus an abundance more. And he talks about how they will make an everlasting covenant. When the children of Israel are gathered and brought back to him, again, they will make a covenant with him. They will come back home. And then there is this period of rejoicing. It's in 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness." He takes off the sackcloth, the ashes, the mourning, and he puts on them these beautiful robes. It's Again, it's got that prodigal son feel of your home and you are my son. That's how he feels. And when we all lean into that process, the result is what you find in 11. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Once this starts to happen, once this action starts rolling, it will be 
visible to all nations of the earth that this there is power happening in Zion. And it's just this electric feel. That electric feel continues on in chapter 62. This is where the Lord is saying He's not going to rest until there's righteousness that goes forth as brightness. That it's going gonna, it's gonna to catch everyone's eye. In fact, I love in 3, He talks about this crown, this crown of glory. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, speaking of Zion, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. President Nelson spoke about this verse, and he talks about how the jewel in the crown of Zion is the temple and will always be the temple. And now that we see temples everywhere being announced all the time, you almost can see these gorgeous little jewels. You know, they're all different from each other. Each temple looks a little different and is catered to its area, but they catch the light just like a jewel set on a crown. It's this distinct, different visual that people all over the world notice. And I I love seeing Isaiah's words kind of play out with President Nelson's announcements. I just think there's power in it. He also talks about how there will be all this peace that will happen. There will be watchmen on the tower. There will be peace day and night, and that we won't give them any rest. We'll be so eager for this to roll forward that we will keep the work going. And then in 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up the highway, gather up the stones, lift up a standard for the people. This is our call to action, that as we see this momentum building, we're supposed to get engaged and lift up a standard so that all the world can come and be close. I also love what you find in 12, where he says, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. People who live in Zion all over the world will not be perfect people. They will be people who are made perfect through Christ. Every one of us will be redeemed. We all will have fallen short in many ways, and we will have turned to the Lord, and we will be redeemed. And I love that that's how we're identified, not as someone who had never made mistakes, but as someone who knows who to turn when they did make mistakes. And to be a community of those kind of people is a powerful thing. One of my least favorite things at Time Out for Women is the big scary clock. <laughs> I started speaking at these events this year and I was just unaccustomed to speaking to crowds so big. And there's this clock that happens. It's a countdown clock that goes on the great big screen. And what's interesting is I can see the great big screen like from the other side of the stage. So on the outside, you've got a couple thousand people who are watching that five minute clock countdown and they're getting excited and settled in their seats because they know the event is about to start. I'm on the backside of that clock and I can see that same thing projected up there and I just feel dread. (laughs) It's not that I don't love to speak, I do. I just get really scared and my heart starts to pound and my stomach drops. Even though I know I'm not speaking for hours after that clock counts down, as soon as I see the big scary clock, my heart just races. And it's interesting to me that something that is so good to so many could represent such dread for me. And I think that's what you see when you read chapter 63, that when the Savior comes again, there will be rejoicing. There will be people who eagerly await His arrival and are settling in their seats to be a part of it. And there will be people who will be afraid, who will dread that day. And a lot of what Isaiah teaches about is that contrast. So in the first, you see that the Savior will come and He will come in red robes, and that will create this fear because the wicked will know that it is their time, that all these things are going to be fulfilled and they will be trodden down. Remember, this is a gross wickedness. This is a rebellion on a a deeper level, but there will be destruction because of it. 
I've always seen the paintings of the Savior in the red robe and just assumed that that represented the atonement that occurred, the blood that he shed. And it does. But if you go on the notes, you can learn that it actually represents three things. The red robes represent the blood that he shed for us in the atonement, the blood that comes because of the sins of the world, especially the sins of the wicked. And then the third is the blood that he he takes on because of the wicked that he has to trodden down. That's what Isaiah is teaching us here. He's talking about how he will look as a man who comes out of a wine press. A wine press is a place where men will stand. In fact, usually there's several people in the wine press and they're crushing the grapes with their feet so that the juices can run down and inevitably their clothing all gets red, right? What the Savior is saying is he had to do this job completely alone, a job that normally we would associate with lots of weight. For, so lots of people have to do it. He has to do it completely alone. In fact, if you go in the notes, you can read Elder Holland's words on this. They were some of the most poignant I found anywhere where he talks about what it must have felt like to be utterly alone. A Savior who loved his father so much and had to get to this point where he felt utterly alone. Um, when he asked God, why hast thou forsaken me? I just think it, he, he worded it in a way I never could. So go in the notes and read his talk. But I love his promise that the Savior chose that path for us and that we should show gratitude for that gift, that we should honor those red robes. It's tempting sometimes to only see the comforting and kind version of the Savior, but I think we have to trust in Isaiah's prophecies about him that this work that he has to do to eradicate wickedness is also a work that we should honor, that is a hard work that he has to do alone, and that we should revere him for it, that, that he's He's creating that controlled burn so that the rest of us can thrive in the area that's left. And we can't carve out that part of the Savior's ministry. It's, it's an important piece. So you can study that in 63. But I do love that Isaiah doesn't fixate on the destruction. Instead, he opens up understanding about the good that will come. In fact, if you look at four, it talks about how there is a day of vengeance, but a year of redeemed. And you kind of get that theme throughout. In seven, he talks about how I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and praises of the Lord. He certainly shines a brighter spotlight on the good that comes because the Lord was willing to do all these hard things. He says, he talks about the difficulty of the relationship between the Savior and the children of Israel because they simply won't stay. In 10, they rebelled and they vexed his Holy Spirit. They pulled away from him and lost their connection to the Spirit, but he still remembers them. He they eventually will come home and he will look down from heaven. That's what it says in 15, that Isaiah is basically pleading. He, I think, like Moroni and Mormon, knows what's going to happen to his people. And he pleads with the Lord to still see them. What I thought was so powerful about this is he sounds like a dad to me who knows his kid has gone astray and he's still pleading. He's still praying. You know, I think if you pictured... I don't know, if you picture the sons of Mosiah's dad, you know, like when they were praying and Alma the senior praying for Alma the younger, that's what this sounds like to me. It sounds like a dad who knows their kids have gone way astray and he's just pleading for the Lord to save them anyway. And it's sweet and tender and totally worth your reading. So don't miss the end of 63. Isaiah's father-like prayer continues in 64. This is where he pleads that the second coming will come, that he will rend the separation. So if you look in verse one, it says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. He he wants that 
veil that separates earth and heaven to split so that they can see the glory of God come. And there's changes to the landscape that will happen, changes to the people. But I love the visual of the veil parting. I was teaching my YSAs about this a week or two ago, about how one of the things I love about the, the imagery of a veil is it's made deliberately translucent. It's not like this, I was comparing it to that, you know, those zigzag curtains that we have in our churches. The veil isn't like that. It's not this fully opaque, impossible to see through thing. It is it is translucent. It lets light through. And even, you know, sometimes it's made of panels. There are these beautiful panels of fabric and you can kind of catch glimpses of what's on the other side. The reason this came to mind is the day after I was teaching my YSAs, I listened to a BYU devotional from um, Elder Lund. He's in the G Young Men's General Presidency, and he taught about these flashes of light. Oh, it was such a good talk, you guys. There's no transcript of it yet because it was just from a couple weeks ago, but you should go and listen to it. It was so well done. And he talked about that's essentially what we have. In this earth life, there are times when the veil parts just a little bit. You know, you catch a glimpse of the divine in your life. He, he mentioned some of the miracles that have happened to him and his family, these little flashes of light that over the course of a lifetime accumulate into this vibrant testimony of what's on the other side. Even though you never got the full picture in this mortal life of the other side of the veil, because you have these flashes of light and they accumulate over time, you can testify of what is there. And I feel like that's what Isaiah is pleading for us to understand, that there will be a time when the heavens are fully visible. And in the interim, we should seek these little bursts of light. I love the way he goes on. He talks about miracles. So if you're looking for, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath I seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. This is a promise that Isaiah is trying to teach us that God has woven into our mortal story these little pockets of joy. My kids, we have this tradition in our family for years when they were little that I would hide their birthday presents in the morning so that they would have to solve like a scavenger hunt to actually find their presents. And like all the kids will in the family will go and try and seek out these presents throughout the day. And if they don't know where to look, then they struggle. But if they will follow the clues, then they can find these little presents tucked all over the house. And that's kind of what I see in this verse. He's basically saying, your heavenly parents have, have thought about this and prepared things, blessings that you can't even fathom, things you didn't even know were there. And I have totally seen that in my life, where we'll be going through incredibly hard things and out of nowhere, we stumble on this miracle, right? This tender mercy that we didn't deserve. And it's kind of like my kids finding a birthday gift in a house plant or in a box of cereal. It's this idea of he prepared this so long ago and you had no idea it was there and now open it up and enjoy. That's what Isaiah wants them to understand. I also love what he says in five. It says, thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those who choose him, those who choose to follow him, he will meet. When you go in the footnotes and you learn a little bit more about this phrase, it means that he will make intercession for. So to meet is, it, well, it's the same thing we hear in the hymn, right? The hymn, what is it called? Oh, where can I turn for peace? That's in my margins. Because it says he will, he reaches our reaching, right? It's this idea of no matter how little my reach is towards him, he will close the gap and he will find me. If I'm, if my trajectory is correct, then he will he will reach me. He will find me. That's what it means to have him meet you. And then Isaiah talks about how they will all be in need of redemption. He compares them to filthy rags, that they all will need help help from the Savior. 
and invites them to use their agency. So in seven and eight, he talks about how they will need to use their agency to let the Lord mold them. In eight, it talks about the, the potter and that they are clay. There have been phases of the children of Israel's course where they have become hardened and stiff, and Isaiah wants them to be malleable again, workable, so that the Lord can craft them back into the children of the covenant that they were intended to be. And so he promises that. He says, but now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art our potter, and we are all the work of thy hands. All of us were intended to be something, and if we will submit our will and use our agency to follow his plan, we can get crafted to be whatever he intended us to be. And his, he just invites them, he pleads with the Lord to listen. So in 9, be not wroth, very so, sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, we beseech thee, we are thy people. Again, this sounds like the dad praying for his kids to me. He's saying, yes, we they were lost for a season, but they are coming home. Please let them in. And of course, the Lord does. But you learn more about that in 65. You guys remember that part in the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph Smith asked the saints to catalog the things that the abuses they had suffered, that they were going to take that to the leadership in like Washington, D.C. to just have a record of all the things that had gone wrong. And that that was an important piece of their story, to catalog those injustices. That's kind of the feel I get when I read chapter 65, because he's basically cataloging how the children of Israel rejected him. Here, the Lord is talking about all the ways he reached after them and they rebuffed him. And I don't think he's just giving this this laundry list of hard things. I think he's trying to help them understand why there is this big gap in between them, why it takes so long for them to be gathered again, because the offenses were great. And there's a list of them in chapter 65. So, in one, he says, I'm, I'm sought of them that ask not of me, for I am found of them that sought me not. And then in two, I've spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people. I love that phrase because it just reminds me of Third Nephi, that when he came to the people on that side of the world, he opened up his hands and he showed them the wounds and they came and they believed. And oftentimes with the children of Israel, in that same kind of gesture, when he did miracles and he fulfilled prophecy, they would not see. And so he reminds them of that. He talks in three, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face. I think as parents, we can get this. You know, like when you see your kids rebel to your face, it's just a harsh blow. And so this is part of his catalog of reasons why it took a while for things to come back. Um, it's interesting what you see in five, which say, stand by thyself, come not near unto me, for I am holier than thou. They got prideful and they got to the point where they were saying, I don't need you close. I think we fall into this same trap today. I know I do, where you start to kind of get comfortable in darkness. I had this closet, our master closet for years. Guys, I think it was like two years. I didn't replace the light bulb. <laughs> like the light went out. We just had one of those cheap little lights in there and the light bulb went out and I never put it back. So we had enough natural light that kind of came in from the bathroom that you could still see. But I found myself getting really comfortable in the darkness. I couldn't see all the mess. I didn't really have to organize it or clean it a lot because you can't really see it all that well. And I got kind of comfortable in the darkness to the point where I, even when I finally did replace the light bulb, I would forget to turn on the switch because I was so used to it. And that's sort of what's happening here with the children of Israel. They've, they're getting comfortable in the darkness and they don't want him too close because when he's close, 
you have to do something, you know, you have to make a choice. I think this sometimes happens with our teenagers. They sort of get into the state where they want to not feel anything because if they feel something, then they'll have to act. And there's this apathy that seems more comfortable, but it's that same lesson we've learned over and over again in every book of scripture, that there is no neutral ground. You're either coming closer to God or you're retreating. And Satan loves to make you think that that little, you know, that space in the middle is you're just standing still and you can pop back on anytime. But Isaiah teaches the opposite, uh, that they were pulling away from him. They were hiding from him. They didn't want him near. But then, of course, this is Isaiah. So he's going to bring us around. Around eight, he talks about how how they weren't destroyed. <laughs> Basically, there was goodness in them that that needed to be preserved. This is that remnant that we've been talking about, that seed that's deep in the ground that he's going to nourish and it's going to come forth at a later time. Um, but he talks about the distance. 12, he says, I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear. In 13, he warns about the results of that. You will be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but they shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but they shall be ashamed. There will be some who will, this is like that big clock that I was telling you about that in the last days, there will be some who get it, and there will be some who come and rejoice, and there will be some who still stoically stand on their faulty, sandy soil and reap the rewards of it. What I love is what you see in 16. He talks about at the end of 16, that because of the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from my eyes, I create a new heavens and a new earth. That promise that our, those sins that we repent of will be fully forgotten by the Lord is a remarkable one to me. There's some great quotes in the notes if you want to go deeper on that, but I love this idea of a new thing, that there will be a new world and we won't even really think back on the old one. I think that's part of the reason things are going to be forgotten and old sins cast off because there's this whole new world. And we won't really think too much about the old one. There won't be crying anymore. There won't be mourning. These are millennial promises that children will live to be a hundred and then they'll change like a twinkling of an eye. I think is how the Doctrine and Covenants puts it, that there will be this shift, no more death, no more pain, no more loss. And I love the proactive piece of these millennial promises. This is around 21 and 22. They'll build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant fields and they'll rejoice in them. I went to a conference this week and I talked to a girl who her husband was an attorney and then they shifted into being potato farmers because it was a family business. And about the joy that they feel in this work, that it's so different, but so good. And, and I, that's when I read this first, I thought of her and I thought, ah, oh, I think I get it. I, I can see where there is joy and delight in partaking of the things you built and you grew. And that's what he's promising, that the things that they plant, that they'll be able to harvest and reap. At the end, he talks about how they'll find answers to their prayers. This is 24. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. That is a closeness with the Spirit that all of us should crave. That before we even know what to ask, He's answered. And before we even finish our plea, He's delivered us. I just think there's power in that kind of connection with the Lord. Okay, we're on the very last chapter, you guys. This is 66, and he's coming full circle to where we began. Again, talking about the state of your heart. Where is your heart? He's referencing a temple that needs to be built. That's part of the second coming, that that temple will be rebuilt. But he talks about who needs to be there. And it's those that he will look to as the poor, contrite heart, and those that tremble at his word. The humble, the teachable, all those things we've talked about with Zion. 
that's who will be in this place. He also offers some warnings. So in four, he talks about those who didn't hear him when he called them. And then five, it almost sounds like they have a division happening within them because he references brethren that hated you and cast you out. That if any are not caring for the poor or maybe even as similar to what we saw with the Zoramites in the Book of Mormon, how they built the Ramiumton and then they wouldn't let the poor come in to worship. They wouldn't allow them to worship among them. I wonder if something similar is happening because he talks about how they will be cared for and how there will be a change. Around seven is where you see this shift. This is where he uses an analogy or an object lesson of a woman who is expecting a child to represent Zion. Basically, the child that will come forth is Zion. And he speaks about this woman who travaileth, or she should be in pain. She should be dealing with struggle but doesn't. In fact, the baby comes so fast. That's the idea of Zion, that that growth that we've been waiting for to come out of that burned field will be rapid. That Going back to the female analogy, that that will happen without pain. It will be surprising to her how quickly the baby comes forth. And then he promises incredible blessings. 12, for thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. They will have these sources of nourishment that will feed them, just like we've studied all throughout Isaiah. And you just have to love the word choices. It makes me think that Isaiah was either a really good dad or just fully appreciated the women in his life because he uses these really intimate gestures of motherhood, the the nurturing, the caring, the nourishing that happens with mothers. I, I wonder if he was watching his wife or his daughters as they had children, I don't know, and that that brought these visuals to mind because he talks about how they will give suck. They will be born on her sides. They'll be dandled upon her knees. They, it's this relationship between the children of Israel and their Lord that will be nourishing and warm and close. Um, I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. 16, he warns more about the fires that are coming and how there will be difficulty coming, but that there will be a promise that there will be a sign. We've read this all throughout Isaiah, so it seems really fitting that he finds a way to inject it into this last chapter. But he talks about a sign among them, that this enzyme to the nations is what the footnotes teach you. And then it talks about the gathering, that these children who have been lost for a season will be brought back as an offering, as as this gift back to the Savior, back to this, they will come back to Zion. And the biggest promise, I think, happens at the end of 22 so that your seed and your name shall remain. Once they are gathered again, this covenant children of Israel will not be broken apart. They will not be lost. Their posterity will continue. Just like those promises that the Lord made to Abraham so many generations ago that they will be fulfilled in the last days. Uh, That's a pretty incredible promise. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate 
meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.